This week on The Word of the Lord Endures Forever, we finish Ruth with Ruth Waits with Naomi, Take My Right of Redemption, Boaz Redeems, Ruth Bears Obed, and then we head back into the New Testament with Intro to James. Join me, Pastor Will Whedon, for The Word of the Lord Endures Forever, your daily 15-minute verse-by-verse Bible study on demand. Listen at thewordendures.org or your favorite podcast provider. We've all seen examples of it, and if you haven't, you probably should, and then try and forget it. Liturgical dance, it was all the rage in the 70s and the 80s. It was just a time of liturgical experimentation post-Vatican II. How was it justified in being introduced on Sunday morning? Well, King David in 2 Samuel Chapter 6, there he is, dancing before the ark of the Lord as the ark is carried up to Jerusalem. Does that passage support the practice of liturgical dance? Welcome back to Issues Etc. Dr. Andrew Steinman joins us to answer that question. He's Professor Emeritus of Theology and Hebrew at Concordia University, Chicago, author of numerous books, including the Concordia Commentary on 2 Samuel. Dr. Steinman, welcome back. Good to be back with you, Todd. Can this text of David dancing before the Ark of the Lord be used as a justification for dancing in the divine service, liturgical dance? No, there's no real justification for that. In fact, it's only one of two passages in the entire Bible that speaks about anybody dancing at anything in connection with praise of God. There's scant evidence anywhere in the Bible that this is something to be done on a regular basis or even an occasional basis. Let's set some context for this account because it takes place at the end of an account of the Ark coming in stages to Jerusalem. First of all, what was the Ark of the Covenant? The Ark of the Covenant was basically a box that Moses instructed the people of Israel to build. It was overlaid with gold, and on the lid, it had depictions of two cherubim. It formed a throne, as it were, for God. God is depicted as enthroned above the cherubim in several passages in the Old Testament. And the ark was intended to be placed in the most holy place in the tabernacle, later the temple. And the ark would travel with the people of Israel throughout their travels, until finally David would bring it up to Jerusalem. And then later, when Solomon built the temple, it'd be put in the most holy place in the temple. So it was uh, an important part of the furniture of the temple. Eventually, a number of items were put into the ark, the um, tablets with God's law on them that Moses made were put into the ark, Aaron's rod that budded, was put into the ark, as was a pot of uh, manna that the Israelites had gathered during their wilderness wanderings. And what did the presence of the ark did more than signify something? It actually manifested the presence of God, even when God was not appearing over it in the tabernacle. Why did the Lord act in this way with regard to the ark? Well, the ark here is intended as a the presence of God in a special way with his people Israel. So 
God, you're right, was present above the ark. There were times when uh, God's glory appears above the ark. A couple times this is mentioned in the Old Testament at the dedication of the temple. God fills the temple from the ark, apparently, so much so that the priests couldn't even go into the temple because of the glory of God emanating from the temple and presumably from the ark. This was the real, actual presence of God with Israel, signifying his special relationship with this nation that he chose. So we begin with the account of the ark being brought to Jerusalem, where David, it says here in 2 Samuel 6, verse 6, David again gathered all the chosen men of Israel, 30,000. And David rose up and went with all the people who were with him from Baal of Judah to bring up from there the ark of God, which is called by the name of the Lord of hosts who sits enthroned on the cherubim. And they carried the ark of God on a new cart and brought it out of the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill, and Uzzah and Ahio, the sons of Abinadab, were driving the new cart with the ark of God, and Ahio went before the ark. Why are they taking such care on a new cart, an assembly of 30,000 people? What's going on there? So they are very much celebrating God choosing Jerusalem as the place where he would want to dwell. The ark had been previously captured by the Philistines. We read about that in 1 Samuel. And then eventually uh, it was returned to Israel and it remained in this place, Baalei, for a while. We don't know exactly how long it stayed there, but it stayed there until David decided to bring it up to Jerusalem. And uh, as the scriptures make clear elsewhere, this isn't just David's decision. This is God's decision. And so this is a very formal procession, apparently, acknowledging God's wishes to have his special dwelling place in Jerusalem. And this is what David and all his officials and 30,000 of them, of them, apparently, come to do uh, to bring this up. They're very, being very careful, of course, because they don't want to uh, harm the ark in any way. But unfortunately, they're not transporting it correctly. By putting it on a cart, that's not how the ark was to be transported. And that, of course, is going to cause problems a little bit later on in the story of the ark coming up to Jerusalem. How were they supposed to transport the ark? Well, the ark had rings on the side of it, and they made poles to fit through the rings on either side of the ark. And then those poles were to be placed on the shoulder of Levites, who carried the ark on their shoulders as they walked. So interesting thing that David is doing here is he's actually kind of imitating the Philistines. It's, it's an irony in the story. When the Philistines transported the ark back to Israel, they put it on a cart and sent it away, and it went back to Israel. And so we have kind of an irony in that here David is doing something like the Philistines rather than following the command of the law of Moses to have it transported by Levites carrying it on their shoulders. Do we have any idea why David is doing this? Well, we have no idea why he chose to do it on a cart. We can only speculate. And perhaps the speculation is, well, that's the last way it had been transported as far as we know from the scriptures. So he thought maybe that's the way it should be done. But we can't really know why he chose that mode of transportation. As far as bringing it up to Jerusalem, 
God had chosen David. God had blessed him. David had conquered Jerusalem and made it his home. And although the Bible doesn't say explicitly at this point that God chose to dwell in Jerusalem, where he had allowed David to uh, set up his capital city, that's the implication of uh, the text, that God chose Jerusalem. And this will be said explicitly later on. It's mentioned in a couple of the Psalms that God chose Jerusalem. And so apparently David feels that because of the blessing of God, this is where God has chosen to dwell, not where the ark had been staying for some time. The next part of the account, David and all the house of Israel were celebrating before the Lord with songs and lyres and harps and tambourines and castanets and cymbals. And when they came to the threshing floor of Nacon, Uzzah put out his hand to the ark of God and took hold of it, for the oxen stumbled. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah, and God struck him down there because of his error, and he died there beside the ark of God. David was angry because the Lord had broken out against Uzzah, and that place was called Perez Uzzah to this day. And David was afraid of the Lord that day, and he said, How can the ark of the Lord come to me? So he was not willing to take the ark of the Lord into the city of David, but David took it aside to the house of Obed-Edom the Gittite, and the ark of the Lord remained in the house of Obed-Edom the Gittite three months, and the Lord blessed Obed-Edom and all his household. A couple things here. What was the celebration for? The celebration was celebrating God's grace that he would dwell with his people, that he had blessed David and his kingdom and therefore blessed all of Israel. And so it's, it's really celebrating God's grace in the Old Testament towards the people of Israel here, and maybe more specifically toward uh, David and his household. The oxen stumbles, so Uzzah, obviously fearing that the cart would overturn or something like that, tries to steady the ark and the Lord kills him. Why? because it was commanded that no one was to ever touch the ark. Notice that the Levites didn't touch the ark even when they carried it. They put the poles through the rings on the side. They never directly touched the ark. The closest they got was touching these poles that the ark was resting on. And this was made clear in the the laws of Moses, going all the way back to his day. You were to not in any way touch the ark. And so here we have Uzzah doing that. This is a very strict command of God, as we can see from what happens to Uzzah, and Uzzah dies. And so we have this tragedy of David not transporting the ark according to the law of Moses, and it costs someone else his life. That in itself ends the first part of the story on a rather tragic note. You can almost feel the pathos about this man, Uzzah, and his good intentions, apparently, perhaps even just a reflex action, and yet it cost him his life. But yet, in some ways, you could see how David would take this as a judgment against him because he had not followed the law of God. By the way, the name of the place, Perazuza, means outbreak against Uzzah or something like that. And that's how that place apparently gets its name after that time. What is the source of David's fear? It says he was afraid of the Lord that day, and then it said he was not willing to take the ark into the city, saying, how can the ark of the Lord come to me? 
Yeah, so he very clearly has seen God's wrath. He's seen God executing judgment when one of his laws was broken. And David probably is now wondering whether God really did choose Jerusalem, that maybe he misunderstood or something like that. We can't really get into the mind of David without the text telling us, but I suspect that's what is going on, that David is thinking, well, maybe I misinterpreted the signals God was sending me, and he won't dwell with me, and I can't live with this very holy God. I'm not holy. I'm a sinner just like everyone else. And so maybe it's not a good thing to be in the presence of God as a sinner. And so I don't want it in Jerusalem. So it says that uh, he took it aside to the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite, and the Lord blessed Obed-Edom and all his household. This is kind of a pattern of wherever the ark happens to be, if it is among God's people, there's blessing. If it, as in the case of the Philistines, among the enemies of God, then there's curses. Talk about that a little bit. Yes, well, God very clearly wants to signal that when he has an attitude towards his people, it is an attitude of grace and mercy and blessing. And so God's people receive blessing from his presence. David was concentrating, of course, on the law side of things, that by God's law, he's going to punish sinners. But God is concentrating on his grace towards his chosen people. Just as God has to this day chosen us and graced us through Jesus Christ, so in the Old Testament, when he chose his people, he wanted to act toward them in grace. And that's what he's doing here with Obed-Edom. And there, by the way, is another little irony in the story here, in that Obed-Edom is called a Gittite. Now, Gittite is a person from a place named Gath. Now, there are several Gaths around the land of Israel, but there's an irony here because, of course, one of the most famous Philistines was from a city called Gath. That was Goliath, whom David had slain. Now, I suspect that this is a different Gath, probably Gath Heifer in Judah, Gath is a prominent name because Gath just means press. It can mean a wine press or an olive press. And there, of course, there would be wine presses and olive presses everywhere. And perhaps the most famous one is a Gethsemane, which it means press for olives. It's on the Mount of Olives, and it makes a lot of sense that Jesus is in a garden later on in Gethsemane because there was a wine press there. So a very common name and a common place but I think the author of 2 Samuel is, again, pointing up a little bit of an irony. Not only did David act like a Philistine when he put the ark on a cart, but also it ends up in a place called Gath, which reminds us of the Philistines that David defeated. And picking up at verse 12, And it was told King David, The Lord has blessed the household of Obed-Edom and all that belongs to him because of the ark of God. So David went and brought up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with rejoicing. And when those who bore the ark of the Lord had gone six steps, he sacrificed an ox and a fatted animal. And David danced before the Lord with all his might. And David was wearing a linen ephod. So David and all the house of Israel brought up the ark of the Lord with shouting and with the sound of the horn. This seems a little bit of humor tucked in here that David is afraid, and then when he sees that Obed-Edom is getting blessed, he wants in on it. 
Yeah. And there is a little bit of humor there, but I think also there's a little bit of theological reflection by David. He realizes that God wants to deal with his people through his grace and mercy. And so David realizes that he was mistaken in his earlier assumption that because Perez had died, God didn't want to dwell in Jerusalem and hadn't chose Jerusalem. And so he receives this report of this blessing. He realizes, oh, God wants to be with me for blessing. And that answers his question, how can I dwell with this God? Well, the answer is you can dwell with this God when he is predisposed to deal with you through his gospel. And so David now comes and says, I want this blessing for myself, and starts to bring the ark up again to Jerusalem. Dr. Andrew Steinman is our guest. We'll talk about David's sacrifices next. Here's an easy way for you to help us cast ChristNet on the internet. Subscribe, rate, and review the Issues Etc. podcast with your podcast provider. Type Issues Etc. in your podcast provider, hit the subscription button, and leave us a five-star review. This will make it easier for other podcast listeners to find Issues Etc. Help us reach more listeners in 2024. Subscribe, rate, and review Issues Etc. today. For nearly 140 years, the Lutheran Witness has taught the faith, defended it against error, and shown forth the great treasures of the Lutheran Church and biblical doctrine. We're continuing this legacy by publishing issues and articles that help you see the world from a Lutheran perspective and that teach biblical doctrine and show forth the treasures of God's Word. Visit our website to learn more and how to subscribe, witness.lcms.org. The Lutheran Witness, helping you interpret the world from a Lutheran perspective. Public schools are increasingly chaotic and undermine Christian children's faith. We need to rebuild our Lutheran schools to provide a truly Christian alternative. Redeemer Classical School is rebuilding this Christ-focused education in Fort Wayne, Indiana, teaching students to wonder at God's creation and to love their neighbors. We need you to help us give children this faithful Christian education. Donations to Redeemer Classical School go directly to providing scholarships. Visit fortwayneclassical.com slash give. Did you know that we send out an email each week that details upcoming show topics? It's available for you to include in your weekly church bulletin. Just click the Issues Etc. Journal logo at our homepage, issuesetc.org, and sign up to receive the church bulletin blurb. It's an easy way to invite your fellow parishioners to listen to Issues Etc. Issuesetc.org. Look for the Issues Etc. Journal logo and register to receive a weekly bulletin paragraph from Issues Etc. Solid. Serious. Substantive. You're listening to Issues Etc. Thanks to the following congregations for standing with us by becoming an Issues Etc. congregational sponsor. Emmanuel Lutheran, Arcadia, Indiana. Prince of Peace Lutheran, Valparaiso, Indiana. Martin Luther Chapel, Marathon, Florida. All Saints Lutheran, Charlotte, North Carolina. Zion Lutheran, Winter Garden, Florida. St. Paul Lutheran, Eden Valley, Minnesota. Mount Olive Lutheran, Duluth, Minnesota. Bethany Lutheran, Naperville, Illinois, Emmanuel Lutheran, Lewiston, Minnesota, and Pilgrim Lutheran, Wauwatosa, Wisconsin.
Find out how your confessional Lutheran church can support this worldwide outreach by including Issues Etc. in your mission or advertising budget. Just go to issuesetc.org, click Support Donate, and print a one-page flyer. When your congregation becomes an Issues Etc. sponsor, we'll publicize your church on the podcast, at our website, and in the Issues Etc. journal. Welcome back. I'm Todd Wilkin. This is Issues Etc. Dr. Andrew Steinman is our guest, author of numerous books, including the Concordia Commentary on 2 Samuel. We're talking about King David dancing before the ark and liturgical dance. Dr. Steinman, can you explain the uh, the practice of David? They go six steps, now bearing the ark according to God's commandment, and then they sacrifice an ox and a fatted animal. Yeah, in the law of Moses, this is uh, commanded that when the Levites carrying the ark go six steps. They are to recite a little saying about God being gracious and merciful and so forth. And so David decides they've gone the six steps. And apparently, although the text doesn't say that, it implies that they recited the words that Moses had commanded, which focus us on the mercy of God. And so the mercy of God goes along in the Old Testament with God receiving sacrifices on behalf of the people who come to receive forgiveness from him. And through those sacrifices as a means of grace, he gives them forgiveness. And so this is what David does. Uh, the, the whole thing triggers uh, the idea of sacrifice because of the mention of God's graciousness and mercy toward his people. The sacrifices, it almost makes it sound like they go six steps and he makes a sacrifice and they go another six steps and he makes a sacrifice. Is that how it proceeds? Apparently not. It's only mentioned the one time. I think it's only the first six steps and they offer sacrifices. Otherwise, it would have taken quite a long time, probably a number of days to get it really from the short distance it had to go up to Jerusalem. But still, it would have slowed it down considerably. So I think probably only after the first six steps. It wasn't commanded in the law of Moses. You had to do this every six steps. What was the significance of sacrificing an ox? What would that ordinarily have been done liturgically in the tabernacle and temple sacrificial system? Yeah, only the most important sacrifices would involve a very expensive animal like an ox. Common sacrifices were often goats and sheep, smaller animals that were more numerous and less expensive. So sacrificing an ox is giving the best and most expensive to God. And it emphasizes David's understanding of giving God the best that he has. And it kind of underscores how David has changed in his thinking towards the ark in his presence and God in his presence. I noticed that in the first transport of the ark with an ox cart, the ox stumbles. In the second transport, where they're doing it correctly, the ox reappears, but gets its proper place, not pulling the ark, but as a sacrifice. Yes. And the author here, again, is emphasizing that David has in some way learned his lesson. Yes, God wants to be gracious and merciful, but that doesn't nullify God's law. He still wants you to follow his law. It kind of reminds us in the New Testament, Paul asking the question, well, if a grace abounds, should we make sin abound even more? And Paul says, no, we shouldn't do that. 
Well, so David understands God is gracious and merciful. And now kind of a third use of the law, he wants to honor God by keeping his law in every way. And so that is why the ox ends up as sacrifice instead of as means of locomotion. I'm reminded of the the account when Elisha is called and Elijah approaches him and he's plowing with the, I think it was 12 head of oxen. And when he's called by the prophet Elijah, doesn't say he sacrificed him, but he does go and burn the all the plowing equipment and the yoke and slaughters the oxen and feeds the people. Is there a connection there? I have often made that connection the same way. I think the connection there, of course, is uh, Elisha is showing his gratitude towards God for being called to be Elijah's successor. Elijah is probably the second most important prophet in the Old Testament next to Moses, which is why we see Elijah and Moses up on the Mount of Transfiguration later on in Jesus' ministry. And Elisha becomes his successor. That is quite a thing for God to choose Elisha. And so although he's not sacrificing the oxen, uh, giving this feast for his family and friends, he is in some ways celebrating and thanking God for being chosen for this very important position of Elijah's successor. We come then to the account of David dancing before the Lord with all his might. When it says he danced before the Lord, usually in art it's depicted as David kind of leading a procession of the ark while dancing. Is that an accurate picture? Yeah, I think it probably is. Dancing before the ark probably means that he's directly in front of the ark and he's kind of leading the Israelites up to Jerusalem, something that probably was important for the king to do. Of course, the king sets the tone for the rest of the people. And if he is rejoicing in front of the ark and they see this as a joyful occasion, they too will rejoice in God's presence. So I think it's probably accurate to say David probably was at the head of the procession in front of the ark as the Levites carried it up to Jerusalem. So they are going in, is this a liturgical procession? I mean, would we call this an act of worship? I think you can call it an act of worship, and I think it's accurate to say David is dancing. However, we should keep in mind there's no command here for David to dance. And in fact, there's no command anywhere in the Old Testament that you should dance in front of the ark or dance in liturgy. The only other person that's said to dance with praise and celebration to God is Miriam and the women after the victory of God at the Red Sea when Pharaoh and his armies were drowned. So we only have this twice in the scriptures. I think it's interesting that in both cases, the dancing takes place outside. It doesn't take place in the temple liturgy. And dancing in worship is only mentioned two other times in the Old Testament, in Psalm 149 and in Psalm 150. And it's hard to tell whether that is intended to be in the temple or not. But other than that, there's no mention of dancing in worship anywhere in the Old Testament. So we have two passages of people dancing, and we have two places in the Psalms which encourage God's people to dance and praise him but nothing that says you should do this regularly in worship, nothing that says this should be done, say, in the temple in the Old Testament. And interestingly enough, dancing in worship is never mentioned 
once in the New Testament, even though in the New Testament, we're encouraged to pray in worship, we're encouraged to sing hymns and songs and spiritual hymns in worship, but we are never encouraged in the New Testament to dance. So using any of these Old Testament passages to say that dance is required or even encouraged in formal liturgical worship inside a church is quite a leap. Since we don't have any mention of dancing, say, in the temple or even in Jesus' day in synagogues. Why are we told that David is dressed in a linen ephod? To show that he is in some ways acting in his capacity as the God-chosen king. Ephods were liturgical, we might say, garments. And the king, of course, is in charge of worship, even though the high priest is the one who's going to do all the sacrificing. But later on, David will be the one who's, for instance, sets the 24 courses of priests that are going to be on duty in the temple and sets all the other liturgical regulations that we read about at the end of First Chronicles. And by the way, this uh, story of David bringing up the ark is in First Chronicles 15 also. So there's a connection there. And David wears the linen ephod. Now, ephods were often worn by priests, but there are a few examples in the Old Testament, not very many, but a few of lay people, people who aren't priests like David, but who had important God-appointed positions wearing an ephod. We even have the boy Samuel wearing an ephod. And at the time, as a boy, he could not have been a priest. He wasn't 30 years old yet. And so the ephod signals that David has an important liturgical role to play, even though he's not acting as priest here. I want to go a little more detail into that because I believe John Kleinig in his Leviticus commentary talks about eventually the role of the king. And I know in an interview with him, he's very eye-opening to say that the king had this liturgical purpose and role to play in the tabernacle slash temple worship. Yes. And, and I think Kleining is right. He doesn't serve as priest. He doesn't do the sacrifices, put the sacrifices on the altar. He doesn't go into the Holy of Holies on the Day of Atonement like the high priest would. So he does have a liturgical function as envisioned in Leviticus. The, the Pentateuch envisions a time when Israel will have a king. And of course, David is a um, picture going forward of the coming Messiah. Jesus is the greater king. Jesus, of course, is also the greater high priest. And so Jesus fulfills both these roles in himself later on. So David's actions here in some ways, point us forward to the greater fulfillment of this in Jesus. Dr. Andrew Steinman is our guest. We're talking about King David dancing before the ark and liturgical dance. When we come back, David's wife, Michael, reacts. What does it mean to inwardly digest God's Word? Find out in Pastor Will Whedon's column in the latest Issues Etc. journal. We'll send it to you for free. Just click the red journal subscription button in the right-hand column at issuesetc.org. In the Wittenberg Trail feature, Dr. John Warwick Montgomery tells his story of finding confessional Lutheranism to be the most scripturally faithful theology. The free online Issues Etc. journal, issuesetc.org. 
Come join LCMS Worship for the Institute on Liturgy, Preaching, and Church Music, July 9th through the 12th, 2024, at Concordia University, Nebraska. We'll gather under the theme, The Songs of Deliverance, and focus on the Psalms together. Everything you need to know is at lcms.org slash worship institute, and you can look for registration information in the early part of 2024. That's lcms.org slash worship institute, God's mission right where you are. Your comprehensive source for information, teaching, and truth. You're listening to Issues Etc. With the oldest deaconess program of the LCMS, Concordia University Chicago has fully certified young women for the deaconess vocation for more than 40 years. I'm Deaconess Kristen Wasilak, Program Director for Deaconess Studies. Help us identify the next generation of servants to care for souls, engage our communities in mercy, and teach God's Word. Learn more about Concordia Chicago's Deaconess Program today at cuchicago.edu. cuchicago.edu. Confessional Lutherans are invited to rent a four-bedroom, three-bathroom Table Rock lakefront home in the Ozarks. Table Rock Lake is a premier lake in the heart of the Ozarks for boating, water sports, and fishing. This log cabin-style rental sleeps 12 and is 30 minutes from Branson and 20 minutes from Silver Dollar City. Learn more by calling Swanson Estates, 713-855-2681. Be sure to mention Issues Etc., 713-855-2681. Welcome back to Issues Etc. I'm Todd Wilkin. We're talking with Dr. Andrew Steinman of Concordia University, Chicago, about King David dancing before the ark and liturgical dance. There's a denouement to this story. Michael, who is David's wife and also Saul's daughter, she witnesses David dancing from a distance and she's disgusted by it. Later, she takes it up with David and accuses him of humiliating himself before servant girls. Tell us about that. Yeah, so David is is wearing this ephod, and keep in mind, probably not wearing any underwear, which was, is common. And he's dancing before the ark, and she's accusing him of exposing himself to the young servant girls who might have been uh, watching the procession. But the text seems to imply that Michael is, in some ways, a little upset about David's role versus her father's role. Her father was hardly ever on, on a great relationship with Israel's God. But of course, that was mostly Saul's doing. It was all Saul's doing, really. So that might have played into it. And so she you know, upbraids him for exposing himself to these servant girls. And David, of course, replies that he was dancing before the Lord he was celebrating God's grace and mercy, he's basically saying, and that he'll, he'll continue to do that. And Michael is not going to put a damper on that. So we have this, this interesting confrontation between the two. And it would appear that the author of Samuel is, is telling us that God agreed with David and not Michael because we are told as kind of at the end of this story that Michael remained childless her entire life. So God apparently is sending a signal. He agreed with David and David's attitude and worship and not Michael, who in some ways might be a stand-in in this story for the um, bad attitude toward God that Saul often exhibited. 
to kind of cap off the story, before we turn to the subject of liturgical dance, it says in verse 17, they brought the ark of the Lord and set it in its place inside the special tent David had prepared for it. I presume that is maybe the tabernacle. David sacrificed burnt offerings and peace offerings to the Lord. And when he had finished his sacrifices, David blessed the people in the name of the Lord of heaven's armies. And he gave to every Israelite man and woman in the crowd a loaf of bread, a cake of dates, and a cake of raisins, then all the people returned to their homes. Is it the tabernacle that he places it in? If it is, it's probably a new tabernacle. The last time we read about the tabernacle, it's early in the book of 1 Samuel. Eli is at the tabernacle entrance. He hears about the uh, Philistines capturing the ark. Uh, And we know from archaeology about this time, Shiloh, where the tabernacle was, was conquered. We we don't have any direct evidence that it was the Philistines who conquered it, but that would make a lot of sense given what the uh, book of 1 Samuel says. That's the last time we read about the tabernacle. So if this is a tabernacle, it's probably a reproduction intended to serve as a new tabernacle. It's likely, although we can't say for sure, it's likely that the tabernacle perished when Shiloh was burnt, as the archaeology would indicate. We have just really no way of knowing for sure, however, what this tent was that David put up. It certainly was there to to house the ark, to keep it out of the elements until a temple could be built. And of course, David is the one who wants to build a temple. We have the story that follows fairly closely after this of David's desire to build a temple and David noting that he lives in a nice house, a palace, but God is living in a tent. And God says, well, I've lived in tents ever since I came up out of Egypt. Perhaps a tabernacle, perhaps a replacement tabernacle for the one that uh, likely was destroyed. We can't say for 100% sure it was destroyed, but likely was destroyed when the Philistines uh, likely overran Shiloh in Eli's day. One of the things that I note here is to the subject of liturgical dance, and this passage is often cited to somehow support it. You've said that's not really justified, but I notice here that David's dancing here seems to be anything but performative. He is not performing for the people. In fact, I think that's what Michael accuses him of doing. And he says, no, I wasn't performing. I was celebrating before the Lord. It was an act of worship. And it strikes me often that liturgical dance crosses the line into performance. Yeah, I think so. The dance uh, that David does, and even if we go back to the dance that Miriam does, was not intended for someone else's amusement. The dance is intended to celebrate before God. It's an act of worship. It no more is performative than, say, our praying in worship is performative. We don't pray so that other people see us praying. We pray to bring our petitions to God. And so the things that happen in worship are directed either from God to us, as in the sacraments, he gives us his grace, or in the preaching of his word, he brings us his holy word, or from the worshipers toward God. But what is going on in worship is not intended to be for the amusement or for the 
performance value before other people. And yeah, I think that's right. A liturgical dance can tip over into that. And we have to be very careful about not doing our piety before humans to be seen by them as the New Testament that Jesus warns us about in the New Testament. So we have to be very circumspect. I would be hard pressed to say that we are forbidden to dance in worship. I have no Bible passage that says we are forbidden to dance in worship. But on the other hand, I have no Bible passage that requires us to dance in worship. And in fact, no Bible passage that shows people dancing inside a building for worship. Only these two examples of people dancing outside in processions, which is perhaps quite a different thing. The other concern that I think I have about liturgical dance, besides it being performative, is also that the meaning of the dance is almost entirely ambiguous. It's almost like beauty in the eye of the beholder. It is something, I think, intended to express joy or celebration, but it's a gesture without an explicit meaning. What are your thoughts there? Yeah, I think it can be seen as that. And David dancing before the ark, I suspect from the other things that are said in context, that it wasn't simply dancing, that it was also perhaps singing or praying or praising God as he was doing it. So that would take away the ambiguity that it wasn't the dancer was silent, which is often the case in liturgical dance, but that the dancer is actually verbally expressing and making more explicit what has been done with their body. Is that also a concern, maybe just kind of cultural context, that dance in almost every culture has some kind of significance, and it's just nearly impossible to lift it up out of the Old Testament, the Old Testament Hebrew context, and bring it into ours without dragging along a little American baggage with it, too? (laughs) Yes, I, I think you're right. Again, because there's nothing inherently verbal about dance, I mean, people can dance and sing at the same time. Anybody who's been to Broadway knows that. But it does have a different cultural significance to different people in different places, which is maybe why it's not mentioned in the New Testament. When the gospel is spreading to non-Jewish cultures, Greeks and Romans, Paul doesn't say dance and worship. He does say pray. He does say praise. He does say sing hymns. But all those things have verbal elements that make it clear as to why you're doing it and hopefully transcend because of the words. They can transcend one culture to another. Whereas dance, which is not inherently verbal, kind of has to be different in different cultures. And so we, we have to be, I think, pretty careful about liturgical dance. Again, I wouldn't say we have, we're forbidden to do it in Scripture. It's certainly that would be wrong to say that. But neither are we highly encouraged to do it, especially in New Testament texts. We're not encouraged at all to do it. Finally, does it kind of highlight the a distinction that does need to be put into place when in reading the Old Testament and the New Testament? There are accounts that are descriptive, and then there are accounts that are prescriptive. 
Yes, and I, I think we need to be very careful about this. Although all scripture is intended to teach us something, it doesn't mean every detail is teaching us to imitate what's going on. And so even in a passage like this, it doesn't say imitate David or all Israel should do this or David made it a rule that this should be done. None of that happens here, although uh, certain rules David makes are mentioned elsewhere in scripture. And even those rules sometimes only apply to the people of God in the Old Testament. So David makes rules for the Old Testament. Priests obviously don't apply to the New Testament. David makes rules for Old Testament soldiers, doesn't apply to soldiers in our day. Uh, So we have to be very careful not to take every detail of every text as saying, you should do this. Certainly, we haven't understood music that way from the Old Testament. So the Old Testament encourages using instruments and even mentions certain instruments, including tambourines and sistrums. I don't think I've ever been into a worship service in my lifetime where either one of those instruments were used. Most people don't even know what a sistrum is. And yet we feel no obligation to use those specific instruments that are mentioned in the Old Testament. Some of them that are mentioned in the Old Testament, we do use. For instance, trumpets sometimes are used in worship. But the church has never felt that just because certain instruments were used in the Old Testament, that that becomes a requirement to use them in the New Testament. I think we can say the same thing about dance. Dr. Andrew Steinman is Professor Emeritus of Theology and Hebrew at Concordia University, Chicago. He's author of numerous books, including the Concordia Commentary on Second Samuel. You can purchase this commentary on the Talk on Demand archives page at issuesetc.org or by calling Concordia Publishing House, 1-800-325-3040. Dr. Steinman, thank you very much. Thank you, Todd. It's been a pleasure. Wednesday on Issues Etc., we'll look forward to Sunday morning, according to the one-year lectionary, talking with Pastor Will Whedon about Jesus foretelling his death a third time and Jesus healing a blind beggar in Luke chapter 18 and its media coverage of religion with Terry Mattingly. So let's face it. Liturgical dance, when it was introduced, was not introduced because someone was studying 2 Samuel 6 and found David dancing before the Lord and said, oh, that's a good practice. It was introduced in a spirit of performance and experimentation and innovation. And then someone found an example in the Bible of someone dancing before the Lord and kind of just tacked it on there. Not a good way to guide your thoughts about Christian worship. I'm Todd Wilkin. I'll talk with you tomorrow. Thanks for listening to Issues Etc. Listen weekday afternoons to Pastor Todd Wilkin and guests on Issues Etc. Issues Etc. is a listener-supported program. Your financial support is vital for the continuation and expansion of this worldwide outreach. Our mailing address, Issues Etc., PO Box 83, Collinsville, Illinois, 62234. Box 83, Collinsville, Illinois, 62234. You can also donate at our website, issuesetc.org. Issues Etc. is a production of LPR, Lutheran Public Radio.